Let us pray. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 99 and may be found on page 540 and 541 of your pew Bible. The Lord is king, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. Mighty king, lover of justice, you have established equity. You have ex executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Extol the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They cried to the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Extol the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. The word of the Lord. Greetings to you from the community at Columbia Theological Seminary. I serve as the president of Columbia Seminary. This is my fourth year, and it is the purpose of the seminary to serve congregations, to serve the church and the world by training leaders. This is my fourth visit to Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, and I always enjoy being here very much. Thank you for your kind welcome. The New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning at the 28th verse. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. 
While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one of any of the things they had seen. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of the transfiguration is one of the most puzzling stories in the Bible. In, in sheer mystery, it's right up there with the story of Joshua who stopped the sun in Joshua chapter 10. In sheer perplexity, it matches the story in Acts chapter 2 of the flames of fire over the heads of the people. It is a story so puzzling that biblical commentators tend to throw up their hands in despair. One commentator remarked that, quote, there is rather limited success in understanding the meaning of the transfiguration, unquote. Well, today is Transfiguration Sunday, and we are going to do our best. <laughs> the story itself is brief in Luke. We are told that about 10 about eight days after Jesus spoke to his disciples about his impending death and resurrection, he went with Peter and John and James up the mountain to pray. While he was praying and while the three disciples were struggling to stay awake, suddenly Jesus had company. Moses and Elijah were there with him, and the whole appearance of Jesus changed into dazzling brilliance. As the disciples looked on in amazement, surely fully awake now, Jesus and Moses and Elijah discussed together what was about to unfold in Jerusalem. Peter wanted desperately to hang on to this holy moment. And so he boldly suggested that three small dwellings be quickly built. But instead, a thick cloud engulfed the mountain, and the voice of God spoke out of that cloud. This is the second time in the Gospel of Luke that God spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism and now here on the mountain. When the cloud lifted, Jesus and Peter and James and John were the only ones left. They descended the mountain in silence, the three disciples probably not knowing what to say, and Jesus perhaps deep in thought about the conversation and the voice. That is the basic outline of the story. On the surface, its meaning is not so clear. The details of the narrative wander off in various directions. Nothing is explained. 
Jesus does not unpack the experience with his disciples on the way down the mountain. They, they and we are left baffled. Except there is one thing that is clear. What is really clear is that this story speaks consistently and compellingly about the glory of Jesus. This is a glory story. It turns out that many of the puzzling details of the story support that key insight that this is a glory story. And this little story yields its treasures to careful and patient listeners. These treasures deepen our understanding of the story, and they all point to one character and one main meaning, Jesus Christ and the glory that shone around him on that distant mountain. And as we explore the details of the story, we get to peek out over a ledge on the side of that mountain and look on in awe. As you look in wonder, notice small clues in the story. As Jesus was praying, his face shone and his garments became radiant. This is an unmistakable echo of the story in Exodus about the shining face of Moses. You'll remember that Moses' face shone when he came down from Mount Sinai. After being in close proximity to God, Moses' face shone. God's glory rubbed off on him. In our story today, the radiance of Jesus is a clear marker that Jesus is in very close proximity to God. In fact, not only does God's glory rub off on Jesus, but Jesus shares in that glory. God's glory takes up residence in Jesus. Think for a minute of Colossians 1 verse 19, which says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now make it a glory verse. For in him all the glory of God was pleased to dwell. On that transfiguration mountain, the glory of God was visible to the eyes of the astonished disciples. Another small clue to the glory of Jesus is the behavior of Peter. Now, let's allow ourselves two attempts to understand the behavior of Peter. Many commentators complain a little bit about Peter, accusing him of rudeness, even stupidity. But maybe Peter wasn't being inconsiderate, but awestruck. Maybe Peter wasn't blurting out a rude demand, but expressing a deep longing to celebrate and enjoy the glory of Jesus. It's true, the text does admit that 
Peter did not know what he was saying. But I suggest that even though Peter did not know what he was saying, he was yet reaching for glory, sensing it. After all, this is the same Peter that made a stunning declaration in the previous chapter in Luke when Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered boldly, you are the Messiah of God. It's not hard to imagine then that on this holy mountain, Peter continues in his desire to lift up the glory of Jesus. That's the first attempt to understand Peter. It is the optimistic understanding, giving Peter the benefit of the doubt and imagining that he is witnessing to the glory of Jesus. But there is another possibility, of course. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas suggests that Peter, quote, wanted to secure in place, if not tie down and domesticate, the wild spirit of God's kingdom. That certainly is a pessimistic understanding, that Peter was trying to take all that glory and tame it. If that is the case, Peter truly did not know what he was talking about. The glory of Jesus cannot be tamed. It fills the whole earth. Interesting, though, isn't it, that both the optimistic and the pessimistic understanding of Peter's bold suggestion. Master, let us make three dwellings. Both still point to the glory of Jesus. In the first, Peter begins to see the cosmic expanse of Jesus' glory, and he is compelled to witness to it. In the second, Peter sees that glory and wants to capture it, contain it, even control it. We need not choose between the optimistic and the pessimistic understanding of Peter's impetuous request. Instead, we see both operating in Peter, and we see both operating in ourselves. We sometimes see the vista of God's grace, and speak out our praise. In our own foolish pride, however, we also sometimes want to seize and tame and limit the glory of Jesus. Maybe we do this when we would rather not live into the call of the gospel. Maybe we do this to keep someone out It's true that sometimes we, like Peter, both embrace and resist the glory of Jesus. Let's look for more clues. Yet another one is the voice from heaven. Scholars call this an enthronement declaration. God's voice speaks out and says, this is my son, my chosen. 
Here is an emphatic identification of Jesus as the Messiah. And then, not content with that, God says, listen to him. That imperative, listen to him, that imperative extends all the way from the top of that holy mountain long ago to all our present valleys and plains and cities and towns and neighborhoods and congregations and families. Listen to him. That imperative proclaims and highlights the glory of Jesus. The most sobering and poignant clue in the story of the transfiguration is the simple observation that this story is a pivot point in the Gospel of Luke. Before this, Jesus was in Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing, engaged in his ministry. After this, Jesus made his slow and inevitable way toward Jerusalem, where he would encounter betrayal and death. The transfiguration gives us a mountaintop perspective. We see on the one side the Galilean ministry, and on the other side lies Calvary. The transfiguration is a pivot point. It was Jesus' last oasis. But notice that transfiguration glory shines on both sides. It shines in Jesus' ministry to the poor and the powerless, and it shines in Jesus' death and resurrection. Even more, transfiguration glory points ahead, way ahead to the time when the glory of Jesus will be fully revealed. Former Archbishop Rowan Williams once said, when Jesus is transfigured, it is as if there is a brief glimpse of the end of all things, the world aflame with God's glory. This is a puzzling story. It overflows the banks of just one meaning. The mountain, the cloud, the conversation, Moses and Elijah, the sleepy disciples, the shining face, the voice from heaven, all of it overflows the banks of a single meaning. But what we have discovered is that all of these details point to a central meaning, to the glory of Jesus. The disciples barely glimpsed it. We see in a mirror darkly and often misunderstand it. But God will bring it to completion. In Jesus Christ, the world is aflame with God's glory. We are all caught up in this glory story. Thanks be to God. Amen.